Tonight I'd like to talk about what I call the five difficult mind states. And classically, they're called the hindrances. But I like to call them the five difficult mind states because they're mind states that we always have to work with and they're not necessarily a hindrance to our practice. So I want to talk about these difficult states of mind and also how they're hindrances to a deepening of our clear seeing in our meditation. Sometimes when we give this talk, it's usually at the beginning of a retreat. And so a number of you are beginning a retreat, so it's appropriate. And a number of you have been sitting for a while, and I still think it's appropriate. Um, When we first come into a retreat... Perhaps these states of mind might be a bit more activated and they may be stronger for you. But people who have been sitting for a while, maybe the six, six weeks uh, yogis, the people who are staying for three months, these, hind- these difficult mind states may be much less or they may be absent, but they can still arise in more subtle ways. And I wonder, too, with the transition and the change over the few days for those who have been here for a while, perhaps there's been some stirring and some of these difficult states of mind could get activated again. So I want to talk about these, and I'll go over them fairly briefly. Each one could be a whole talk in itself. We're talking about these five states of mind that the Buddha identified as states of mind that need to be seen, identified, and understood, and known how, known how to work with in our practice so that they don't hinder us along the way. So the first one is uh, the wanting mind or the desire for sense pleasures. The second one is aversion, the opposite, or the not wanting mind. The third one is what we love to say, sloth and torpor, the sleepiness, tiredness, dullness of mind. The fourth one is the opposite energy of that, is restlessness, a lot of energy. And the last one is doubt, self-doubt or skeptical doubt. So I want to talk about these and uh, bring some, some clarity about how we can open to these more fully so we're not hindered along the way. The Pali word for hindrances is nivarana, and it literally translates as covered over, covered over. And it really means that when we're identified with our states of mind, our mindfulness gets covered over in a way we can't see as clearly. We can't see what's happening so well in our experience because we're very we're caught or we're identified. We think that something's wrong. We need to overcome in order to continue along our uh, our path. So there's a sense of being covered over, and then it's hard to recognize these states of mind just as states of mind, without taking them so personally, and getting caught up in this whole sense of. Uh, uh, I, the idea that something's wrong, that we're, we're going the wrong way in our practice. When we feel hindered, 
we tease this word apart, when we feel hindered, we feel like something blocks our way or there's an interference with the flow of movement. That's the sense of being hindered, just as if we were walking down a path and something blocks us or hinders, hinders our forward movement. We can't carry on. So we can feel like something's in the way. I can't go, can't go forward. In our, in our meditation, we can feel disconnected from the flow of our experience. We can feel blocked or impeded in some way, like something's not going right. And there's this almost like the sense of hitting a wall or some kind of obstacle. And this is the way we might perceive if we're not seeing clearly what's actually happening. So to get a sense of this, we can ask... What's our meditation like when we're having a good meditation? What kind of idea do you have about what it means to have a good meditation? And when we answer that, we might talk about feeling open, uh, that we feel at ease, things are flowing, there's a sense of the changing, uh, impermanent nature of things, uh, We feel unblocked or a sense that nothing's in the way, some kind of way we feel unhindered. And when we feel hindered, we might experience more of the sense of being caught, which we call identification, the stickiness of mind, or uh, love this metaphor of the Velcro mind, you know, Velcro mind, where, where you know Velcro, you know, just sticks together and to try to this, this plastic substance that when you stick it together and you try to peel it apart, it, it's very hard to get it to come apart. The mind can feel like that when we're identified and sticky, mind sticky in this way. This is a kind of selfing um, or fixation of self. And we have a sense that the flow has stopped because there's clinging in the mind. This is, nothing stopped. There's no flow that has been impeded. Nothing can stop the flow of experience. It's just that it, we experience it this way. We think it's this way. So it's a mental kind of perception or view of what's happening. And we can experience this as a kind of tension in our, in ourself, a tension between what's actually happening and what we want to have happen what we would like. And generally, what we like is to feel good, to feel comfortable, to um, have our expectations of what's happening in our experience match our ideas of what a good meditation is, like I was just saying, kind of openness, uh, ease, uh, flow, this kind of thing. We want to match our standards of what we've set up to be good or right in our meditation. But all this is just in the way, really. If we can let go of our preferences for what we'd like and allow what's happening to happen, as Sally was speaking about last night, then what's happening in the mind and the body is just the changing landscape of our mind, the changing landscape of our body. 
So this is what I want to talk a little bit about with each one of these, how we can actually look at each one of these difficult states of mind and look at it in a way that we don't feel so impeded, we don't feel hindered, we don't have a sense that anything's wrong. Can we, can we, this is it's so important to overcome this idea. I can remember so many times in my own practice when my experience started to change and I didn't feel good or I was having more difficult, unpleasant kinds of experiences, I would think I was doing something wrong. I don't know if you've had this sense and that somehow you have to get over it. I have to get over it. And of course, I wanted to always report good experiences to my teachers in the interviews, you know, and I didn't want to go in and say, you know, what my idea of what was difficult. So again, my, all my expectations about what was good or right, and then, then wanting to some maybe even embellish in some way when I spoke with my teachers about it. All this kind of way that we get caught, we get identified in our ideas and our expectations. I like this um, simile, uh, this clear pond simile, to kind of point to, get a sense of how each one of these operate. If you imagine the, the pure mind like a clear pool where you can see down into the depths of the pool, then sense desire would be like pouring beautiful dyes into the pool, and you would get entranced by the colors and not able to see down into the depths of the pool, distracted, entranced by these beautiful colors. Aversion would be like if the pond had hot water put into it or had hot mud on the bottom and it started to boil, like a hot spring, something where it's mud boiling hot pools. And it would be turbulent and hot and disturbing, and you wouldn't, again, be able to see down to the bottom of the pool. Aversion is like this hot disturbance. Sloth and torpor would be like the thick layers of weeds and algae on the pond's surface, too thick to see to the bottom of the pool. Restlessness is like if there was a strong wind blowing across the top of the pool, Just on the surface, again, you wouldn't be able to see down to the depths. And doubt, when there's the identification with doubt, it's as if somebody took a big stick and stirred up the mud on the bottom of the pond, and all the mud kind of came up, and the water got all murky and cloudy, and again, you can't see clearly. It's just that's what you think the water is, is just murky and muddy. This is the sense of these qualities the characteristics of the mind states when we get caught up in them. So the first one, desire, which is really desire for sensual pleasures, the wanting for pleasure, wanting for a pleasurable experience or, or something that feels good. Do you know this one? You know, this leaning towards, leaning towards, oh, I... And, and, and the, the desire, you can't really separate it so much from the aversion. These two really work together because the desire for something is a kind of rejection of what is right now. It's a way that we don't really want to rest into our present experience. So there's a leaning, a kind of 
uh, toppling forward to something else that we think is going to change our experience enough that we'll feel better than we do now. So, so, so there's, a, there's an aversive quality in the desire for that pleasant, pleasant thing. And it's, both of them are grasping. Whether it's desire or whether it's aversion, there's a contracted mind state, which then contracts the body. And when, you, when we're exploring each of these, it's really good to get a sense of the energetic feeling in the body, what it's actually like to feel these, because we have to know them. We have to, when they arise, it's like, oh, yeah, that's desire. Oh, that's what this feels like. And it's not just a mental contraction of wanting that thing, but we can feel it all through the body when we become sensitive enough. And the feeling, the energetic feeling, is when the body is pulled. You can actually feel, and you can feel the, like you want to get up and move right towards that object. I've had this so many times in my sitting meditation where I've had the desire not to be feeling what I want, which is a kind of aversion, the desire to leave the room. And you can just, if you're, if, if you're very mindful, you can just feel the, all the muscles just wanting to move the body in that direction of the desire. It's, it's a whole, and you have to contract the body in order to move the body. So you can just feel this whole kind of energetic movement of the desire when you start to get sensitive. And, and therefore, in knowing that and being able to observe that, you can interrupt it. You don't have to just follow the desire sort of heedlessly or mindlessly because there's the mindfulness, there's awareness to say, oh, yeah, I, I'm being pulled towards something right now and rejecting what's happening in this moment. The mind is not content to be here, and it's seeking its fulfillment outward in something else, some other condition, whether it's the cup of tea or the soft bed or the uh, fresh air outside. or you know, not, that, not that these things are wrong or bad. It's just like we want to know what's, what's compelling, what's motivating, what's pulling, and what are we being pulled away from? Very important to recognize if there is the rejection going, the grasping happening, which is uh, another way of knowing quite well that the desire is happening. If I believe that my fulfillment is dependent on feeling good, Really reflect on this. You know, this sort of, I'm happy when I feel good. You know, this way that we can, we're wired up. If I really believe this, then I'm going to be manipulating my conditions, grasping onto the pleasant, pushing away the unpleasant, and probably trying to line up as many pleasant experiences as I can. And this whole kind of um, manipulation which comes from the selfing, the sense of me and what I want and what I don't want. It's all about me. Rather than this sense of kind of resting back and opening to the flow of conditionality and paying attention to our responses, the aversion and the desire, the aversion and the desire, which we've been talking about and will keep encouraging. 
So this pull towards something better than what's happening here. This is the des- this desire for sensual uh, pleasure. So the first thing to do in in working with this uh, movement of mind, is, and the first step always is the mindfulness of it, the recognition of it, the identification, and becoming familiar with the way this moves in our body and our mind understanding this movement of desire. And I'm sure we'll be having many more talks, and some of you who have been here already have had many talks, because it's one of the key teachings, the second noble truth of the Buddha, uh, the cause of our, of our dukkha, the cause of our unsatisfactoriness, is this clinging, grasping of the desire and the aversion. So first we want to know it. We really want to know it well. How does it move in our mind and body Another useful antidote in when you recognize the desire has come is to reflect on impermanence. Reflecting on the nature of the all conditions arise and pass, come and go. And you can ask yourself the question, how much will fulfilling this desire right now matter tomorrow or in six months? or at the end of my life, to really put some, get some perspective on how big this desire can feel in the moment. But when we look at our life, how important is it really? What if I just did, did sit here right now and didn't act out or what I call discharge that energy of the desire, actually fulfill that energy of the desire, but actually sit here and explore, feel, sense. Come into some understanding about the nature of desire itself. For myself, after years of working with the teachings and the practice, I can. it's so interesting to see that in some ways I can't even reach out anymore. That movement that wants to go out towards the desire of what I think is going to bring me my happiness and my fulfillment, it's, I can't even do it anymore. It's like I've, I know so well that my happiness doesn't lie out there, but I need to continually come back here and to find the resources and my own capacity for my own aliveness and my contentment right here. Anything else is just going to slip right through my fingers, like sand through my fingers. So it's so interesting how that, that wisdom of knowing what's true can just change. It can just interrupt that flow of conditioned desire. So the reflection on impermanence. And, an, and another antidote that can help us is with desire is wise restraint using moderation. And, for example, for the people who have been here for a while, for, this, for the, for the three-month yogis, it may be a time in your practice where you begin to simplify more if you haven't already. You know, you can eat less or sleep less, uh, put more emphasis on continuity in the practice, really challenge some of the habits to get comfortable. Because it can be interesting how, even in this situation, you just find your 
your lines of comfort, your places of comfort. And so here's an opportunity to just challenge that a little bit too. Start to use a little bit more restraint and see what happens as you begin to uh, look more deeply at this movement of desire for pleasure, for comfort. The eight precepts are also um, uh, something that people take on to challenge uh, ourselves in this way. And you'll have an opportunity, as we said in the beginning, to uh, uh, take that on for those of you who haven't and, and uh, for those of you who, who have been here who haven't done it yet. And we don't do this from a place of should or an imposed idea of what we're supposed to do as good practitioners, but more from a place of wisdom that asks the question, if I do this, is it helpful for my awakening, for my liberation? I want to turn the mind, incline the mind towards what's helpful, towards what's supportive to wake up. So we work with things in this way. And as our concentration starts to deepen and our mind becomes more one-pointed and unified, this begins to counter sense desire because then even the most alluring distraction cannot move the mind. The mind is just not infatuated with things in the same way, but a concentrated mind is happy here, happy at home. So, so the, the meditation already supports this interruption and shifting this condition of mind. So desire. Aversion, the opposite energy of the contracted mind, the not wanting mind, which is judging, uh, condemning, resistance, anger, fear, hatred, you know, these strong emotions uh, that always have some kind of charge to them. Even when I talk about it, I feel like I'm, you know, tightening up that, you know, the tightening up of the mind. Um, It's usually a reaction to something unpleasant, five senses or something going through the mind. And again, it's the energetic feeling that I've been talking about. Um, We experience the mind and the body in this tightening energy, a resistance to our present reality. We don't want it. We don't like it. We don't want it to be this way. And the mind can get very uh, uh, firm, very strong in its reactivity around this. There's a belief when aversion is present that something is taking away my happiness, that somehow we're losing our happiness by this thing that's happening. And only if it didn't happen, if if I could change in some way, if I could do something different, then my happiness will come back. This conditional happiness, not an unconditional happiness, the happiness of the Buddha. Conditioned, Conditioned happiness dependent on present conditions. It's a very complex mind state, aversion is. Um, Because sometimes when we feel aversive, we feel some of those states that I mentioned, we can notice that in ourselves and then get aversive to ourselves because we're aversive. And then when we see that, 
then we can add another layer of aversion to the aversion to the aversion. And it just keeps piling up in all different kinds of, you know, in fear and uh, resistance and anger and uh, judging. And it's, we just can get ourselves in such a ball, a tight ball of aversion. And so what we can do really is work only with the outer layer of aversion. You can't really get down into the, what the aversion is really about. You almost have to take, just notice the most outer reaction to the aversion. Say, oh yeah, I'm reacting to my aversive mind and bring some softness, some kindness to that. And then as you begin to soften that, then you can start moving more in towards what's in the center there. It's very complex. So again, for the three-month yogis, you know, the transition here may have stirred some things up for you. You know, many more people came in. You have a much bigger group of people here uh, than you had six weeks for the six weeks. People aren't as quiet, generally, moving around maybe a little faster or maybe not as mindful, closing the doors yet, that sort of thing. And, and there can be that reaction. And, and what can happen is the blame and the judgment can come up so quickly that we're missing feeling the unpleasant quality of the experience that we're actually reacting to. It's not about what's happening out there. It's not about what anybody's doing here. It's about how we are with it, how we're responding to it, how we're reacting towards it. And, and when you, again, look closely you see, it's just, there's a, something so unpleasant, it, it's hard to stay with it. It's hard to be mindful. I can remember when I had um, one of my early three-month uh, uh, retreats, I remember sitting and, and just feeling all this aversion in my mind contract, and, t- and I didn't even know why. And finally, I just asked myself, what's going on? What's going on here? And I came down into my body and I noticed that I had this really bad ache, little pain in my kidney, just a teeny little really sharp pain in my kidney. And I didn't want to feel it. Like feeling that, just that, that just the, the, the subtlety of that unpleasantness was too much to feel. And as I, I recognized that, I brought my attention down and, and felt it. And that was it. It just... My, my experience started to open. My mind started to open. And I could breathe again. It's like, oh, just that. I didn't want that there. It was very uncomfortable. And so sometimes we don't even know. We don't even know what we're reacting to. We don't know what's going on. So we want to ask, perhaps, what is so painful about this situation that I'll do anything not to feel it? to be present with my experience. Because sometimes it's really hard just to be that simple with ourselves when we're feeling unpleasantness. So the antidotes, working with aversion, really are mindfulness and compassion. Recognizing, acknowledging, making some sense. This is aversion in the mind. This is the mind is filled with aversion right now. And then to see if we can turn towards it and feel. Feel the contraction. Actually start to bring, a guy I was speaking about this morning, start to bring the awareness closer to the unpleasantness. Begin to soften around the contraction 
and see what happens as we breathe and soften, breathe and soften. But you really need curiosity. You, you need a certain willingness and curiosity to do this, or we'll just stay in the separation and the resistance. Because it's hard. It's hard to do this practice that we're being asked to do here, especially when we're talking about painful aspects. And the aversion doesn't need to go away. We just want to invite some understanding. What is it? Why? Why? What happens if the mind gets involved in these difficult states? Aversion is an energy that wants to, again, discharge. It wants to act out so we can get rid of that difficult state. And so by being mindful of the energy and containing the energy that wants to uh, act out in some way, this can neutralize the reaction. Just the holding of the energy can begin to neutralize that um, uh, as we hold without the discharging. And as the concentration develops and we have more contact with the present moment, we begin to feel delight and joy in the contact itself with the present. And this joy then shuts out the aversion and the ill will. And it actually keeps the aversion at bay because we start to feel satisfied with the sense of presence that we actually can be here for ourselves no matter what's happening. So aversion... Desire and aversion. The third one is sloth and torpor. All you have to do is say it and you know what it is. You can identify it right away. Because your whole body just starts to go to sleep. You know, just sloth. You know, the, the loss of energy, the lack of energy, the sleepiness, dullness, laziness, boredom. When there's... There's just not much energy to even pay attention or to lift the mind to our experience, the conditions in our experience. We feel heavy. We feel pulled down. We feel like we're sinking. And yet we're asked to stay present even with this. And this can be hard because how are we going to be present? It takes energy to be present. There isn't any. And so it can be easy to feel aversive towards this state because we think that we're not doing good meditation. If we can't lift the mind, if we can't be more mindful, if we're just kind of sloth or uh, dull or tired, we can easily judge ourselves and uh, condemn ourselves for this. But if we are able to stay present with this too, this can help to deepen our concentration. But it's really important to investigate this mind state because we human beings have a general habit of kind of cutting off from our experience, of going to sleep, of not really wanting to be here so much, so well. It's kind of just becoming a bit dull or sleepy or not really paying attention. Now, it's sometimes it's a little bit 
more comfortable. <laughs> it's a little easier than actually knowing what's going on. You know, that's, again, it's, it's a challenge to be here. So there are three possibilities of what happens when we are feeling sleepy or dull. One is that it may be a genuine physical need. And so interesting how many people forget this on meditation retreats, that the body needs rest. And it may be that we're not feeling well, or we're a little bit off, or we've just come in, a number of you have just come in, and you're just making the adjustment. Um, you uh, had perhaps some stressful conditions before you came, and you're finding yourself, it takes a little bit of time to bring some clarity or some sharp sharpness. All this is natural. You know, it's not unusual at all, particularly at the beginning of a retreat. For me, oftentimes on a, a, a 10-day retreat, it would take me four days before I started to get over some of my sleepiness or my dullness. And I remember thinking that was really a problem given that it was only a 10-day retreat and would have sometimes give myself a hard time for that. But for some reason, this body and mind goes through that. And all I could do is to see if I could bring some mindful attention to it and not judge myself for it. So one is a physical need. The second is that it just may be a strong habit or tendency of mind to shut down, a way that we actually get defensive in relationship to our experience, where it's too hard to feel. It's too hard to allow in what's happening. We, we, we have a habit of keeping things away. And this is something that we want to know and understand if it's actually occurring for us. When we do this kind of cutting off of our experience over a long period of time, over some years, we can actually feel a kind of numbness in our, our nervous system which can feel like a dull coating over our experience. It's like, it's like there's a way that we can't even make contact because of the habit, a kind of a numbing or, a, or a, a freezing kind of habit in our system. We'll experience that as kind of a dullness or a lethargy. But when we start to wake up from this, and we do this when we're on longer retreats, what can happen is that as we wake up, we're actually bringing some of that unconscious material up, up into consciousness. And that can be hard. So we might want to retreat to some of our old strategies. So it's also to know that as we do wake up, we're un- uncovering. We're uncovering and allowing certain issues to surface that we may not have looked at before. And this is good. We want this so that we can have more understanding, more self-understanding of who I am, what this is about. So the physical need, the um, habit of mind. Another way that we might cut off from our experience is resisting something that's happening in the present. So right in this moment, there's some intuition, some kind of sense that something's occurring at I don't want to feel it. (laughs) I don't want to know about it. It's like, not this. I'm not ready for this. And there can be a way of just uh, habitually 
cutting off, just kind of pushing it out. Something that we might want to know about if we're doing that. It might be a way that our consciousness hasn't yet caught up with this particular pattern and we're still not aware. It hasn't come into our consciousness, so we're still resisting it. And yet, often these are emotional issues that do need some attention, whether they're, uh, you know, it's some kind of fear or loneliness or um, some kind of anger or a memory that might be surfacing or something. It's like, can we work with the resistance, at first the sleepiness, and then as we start to open to find ways to hold what's arising. And we'll we'll be talking more about the skill in doing this. So this is what um, we want to examine around sleepiness. What's actually occurring? What's going on? So we bring our attention to it. The way we do that, the antidote for working with it, is to bring energy, to arouse some energy. Because we need energy to explore, to investigate. So the first step in working with sleepiness is to really look at our relationship to it. Is there aversion to it? Is there resistance to the fact that I'm sleepy? Because if there is, then we can't really examine the sleepiness. First, we have to work with the resistance, take off that layer, and then we can start to work with the sleepiness. If there is aversion then we want to include that in our awareness. Say, oh yeah, aversion is here. We want to bring our mindful attention to the aversion. That's also here. That's also present. We don't have to somehow override it or push it away. We, okay, now it's aversion. That hindrance is present. Otherwise, what can happen is that if we don't notice the resistance, it feeds the tiredness. If we're in a mode of resistance, we can just get more tired and not really know that we're feeding the tiredness in that way. It takes a lot of energy to be aversive. Have you noticed? It's really tiring to stay in an aversive mode. So one is looking at our relationship to the sleepiness. And then the second antidote is to really look at our intention to stay present. Are you actually interested to be present? Because in working with sleepiness, it takes a strong intention to arouse the energy because there isn't much to do it. So you really need the intention to stay present with the sleepiness. There needs to be a certain determination, a certain sincere interest in that. And the intention actually brings energy. Anytime we have the intention to make something happen in a wholesome way, that already brings energy, uh, brings, uh, energy to the mindfulness. So this returning back again, breathing, um, keeping our back up straight, opening our eyes, putting your arms up on top of your head, standing up, doing faster walking, all of this helps to bring more energy when we're feeling a bit dull. But again, it takes a certain intention, a sincere interest to want to work with your energy in this way, to balance your energy when it gets too low, when it gets too dull. 
Sometimes uh, when you're sitting for longer periods, the concentration, and the concentration is strong, you can, the tranquility, the calm can get very strong, and then this can create a kind of sinking mind. You can become so calm that you kind of just sink away into the tranquility. So it's a, it can be a way that the, that the dullness or the, the, the tiredness comes about through strong concentration, actually. So this is just another way we want to balance the energy using the same kind of antidotes to, to bring a bit more energy back. So this intention to aim our attention at our experience, either the breath or the body in this way, actually lifts the mind up and can counter this dullness of mind. So this is the way we can work with with the uh, sleepiness in our practice. Restlessness and worry. This is an agitated mind and body. The opposite energy. Agitation, anxiety, worry, frustration, edginess, irritability. Another very complex mind state. Thoughts, feelings, sensations, all happening together. Very difficult to be with, and there's often aversion compounded with it. Because the restlessness can be so unpleasant, we are often in resistance to it. The mind can be very scattered, unfocused, unable to rest. The mind is moving in the past and the future, going into all kinds of memories and plannings and fantasy, this restless mind. You can spend hours going over the same thing again and again. Can it be a sense of unfinished business, business that you have to take care of or conflicts that you've had, and your mind just goes over and over and over, trying to figure out a solution, Yeah? If I could just figure it out, you know, just going over. But just restless mind, really. The body, it goes into the body, agitated, nervous, and unsteady. The ground can feel very unsteady. But as I've explored restlessness in my own experience, I've really come to appreciate how deeply conditioned restlessness is. I think I always kind of just thought of it as sort of a hindrance that I could overcome in my practice, but I think this is really one of the more deeply conditioned, uh, uh, difficult mind states. One of my teachers, Hamid Ali, who's um, uh, started the Diamond Heart School, the Ridwan School in California, he describes restlessness like this. He says that restlessness is a contraction in the nervous system. It is the specific feeling of suffering. It's not just pain or anger or fear. It is emotional suffering in its purest form. It is the suffering at the core of all human pains. Very deep. It's just this uneasiness of being in a human body and a human mind. And when I really appreciate this in this way, I I see how easy it is to judge ourselves, you know, when there's the fear or the worry or the restlessness. It's so easy to judge ourselves and make ourselves wrong for this restlessness. But it's very, very deep. And it takes so much uh, compassion and 
holding kindness towards ourselves when we're feeling this in ourselves. So the, so the antidote really is to bring a certain calm and steadiness of mind as much as we can without adding more pressure from the judgment, the aversion, the resistance to it. So we really have to work with the more outer layer of the a relationship to the restlessness so that we can begin to let the body and mind find its own balance, its own homeostasis. So we're not adding more pressure. It's like being in a pressure cooker. You know? So we want to take the lid off as much as we can so, so that energy could start to release. So we watch the judgment, the aversion, the resistance... But also we want to have a wide, kind of a wide awareness, an open awareness to hold the whole body. We don't want to, you can, you can do gentle breathing, but not a kind of a focused, very specific attention on the breath. Kind of a, a gentle breathing with a wide awareness to allow the energy to move in a wide field. Sort of like uh, the metaphor of cows are happier when they're in a wide field than when in a small pasture a small kind of closed pasture. Do you want to open it up so that, so that energy can just move? It takes a lot of, uh, of a kind attention to ourselves when we're in this state. And as the concentration deepens, we experience a kind of happiness of mind that is born from the concentration, and the mind starts to be happier at home. And so there's no need to go anywhere else. There's, there's no need to start finding other conditions to overcome this restlessness. We start to experience a more of an ease and a, a comfort within ourselves. And it's this happiness, this sukha, actually, that starts to exclude the restlessness and the worry. We start to feel more present here more comfortable here. This is the uh, kind of the contentment again that starts to arise in us as we go deeper into understanding the conditions of this mind and body. Desire, aversion, sloth and torpor, restlessness, and the last one is doubt. Skeptical doubt or self-doubt. And as you know, you probably heard, this is the most powerful one of all. Remember when I first heard that, I was like, what? It doesn't seem like it'd be more powerful than desire or aversion, but it's the most powerful one of all because it is not seen. If we identify with it, if we believe the doubt, the self-doubt about ourselves, about our practice, about the teachings, about the teachers, all of this will stop our practice will stop meditation. We'll leave. Right? We won't even do it. I'm out of here. You know, I don't have the capacity to do this. I don't like these teachers anyhow. I mean, was the Buddha enlightened? Who, who knows if the Buddha was ever enlightened? It's all mythology. You know, I mean, what are we doing here anyhow? You know, it's sort of this. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not a good meditator. I never could meditate. I can't keep my attention here. I'm, I'm. That up. I don't have any capacity to do this practice. We just leave. Stop. It's a very complex mind state because it's a confused mind state. It's a, 
an indecisive mind state. Well, should I stay? Shouldn't I stay? Or can I do it? Can't I do it? Um, maybe I can, but oh, it doesn't seem like I can. And you know, there's no real ground of our being. We feel very unsteady. We feel a bit lost, uh, groundless in this mind state. There's no trust. There's no faith in when this mind state is present in our own capacity to wake up, in the even the truth of liberation. It's the opposite of faith. The uh, doubt is the opposite of faith. Faith in our capacities and our uh, in the teachings and the teachers. This is from uh, Sharon Salzberg's book uh, called Faith. When we believe that our circumstances, inner and outer, will never change, and that there is nothing we can ever do to find love or peace again, our faith is consumed by hopelessness and doubt. When we really believe this, you know, it's so it can be so debilitating, really so painful when we start to believe ourselves as so small and limited and you know, really, really viewing and perceiving reality from this place of ego. Very small, small, narrow mind. From this location, we just don't see clearly. <laughs> it's that muddy water. You know? And so it's so important to actually see doubt as doubt, to recognize it for what it is which can be so slippery because when you're in doubt, again, it's hard to find that place where you're going to be mindful and attentive in a clear way. But if you can see it, then you can see that doubt are just thoughts, again, rising and passing. They have, they have no real reality to them. They're, they're just blips in the mind that we give so much power to. We make up a whole story about who I am and who I am in this world and my place in this world. And then we start to live our life from that story, as if it's true. We often don't actually doubt our doubt. Like doubt our doubt. Like the, this is the great doubt, the, 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 the wholesome doubt that can doubt the unwholesome doubt. You know, bring in this skepticism that says, wait a minute, maybe that's not true. Maybe the way that I've been thinking about myself and my life and my, who I am in this world has, has just been a limited view, like Sally was talking about, this, half, this cup that's half, half empty or half full. Which way are we looking at it? Faith is what can dispel doubt. When we trust in our capacity, we, we trust in our goodness, we trust in the goodness of human beings, and we trust in the wisdom of these teachings. We, we trust in others who have walked this path, this, this faith in what has gone before, you know, somehow d- just cultivating this sense of, of faith in ourselves and what's possible, which is partly our job, too, is we want to inspire faith in you so that you can uh, have a ground to stand on and to wake up from into the fullness of your own potential and your own capacity. And practice itself is an antidote to doubt because it helps us see through the mind, the patterns of the mind. It gives us tools and a way to begin to examine 
what we've taken to be so true that actually may not be so true. So even being here, the practice and, and your dedication, willingness to this, to looking deeply into what's true is an antidote to the doubt. And the practice also invites a kind of surrender and letting go to what truly is so that we're not as caught up in our figments of our imagination, piercing through our perception so that our perception is more accurate, as accurate as we may be able to get it through this practice of bare attention. And as our concentration deepens and we're more immersed in our present experience as it is, there's really no space for doubt to arise. We are present and connected with reality as it is. We see. It's, this is how it is. This is, I'm, I'm feeling uh, tired, or I'm feeling uh, agitated, or I'm feeling doubtful, but I see it. You know, we're immersed in our experience. So there's no room for it to expand, for it to grow, because we see clearly as the concentration deepens. So these five difficult mind states. I think that much of what we develop in our practice on a retreat is really how to work with these mind states. This is really what we're working with, desire and aversion. We talk about paying attention to the attitudes of mind, how the mind moves in in grasping towards the pleasant, pushing away the unpleasant. And then our ways that we can cut off of of getting sleepy or dull or uh, uh, doubtful about our experience. And then the imbalances in our energy, learning how to balance in skillful ways so that our energy doesn't get too... uh, strongly agitated or excited, but we're also not getting too uh, passive or dull. All these, all these ways that we begin to learn and work with in our, in our practice. This is what we're, what, we're, what we're learning and practicing here. And probably you've heard then through what I've been saying that as our meditation develops, the hindrances or these the, the way that we're they become obstacles in our practice start to open up and our concentration can deepen and then these states of mind don't arise in the same way maybe more subtly or they disappear for some time and then this allows for our consciousness to be more refined which brings forth more power and clarity and strength, and brightness of mind, which then supports the deepening of insight so that we see things more clearly the way they are. So these hindrances don't need to hinder our clear seeing, but really we just want to see them for what they are. That's the first step. Just see them for what they are. Just desire arising, aversion arising, Sleepiness, restlessness, doubt. Or as our dear teacher Joseph would say, empty phenomena 
rolling on. Just the landscape of our mind. Let's sit for just a minute. May our wisdom and our compassion awaken. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.